Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Peculiar Stories and Far Out Tales. I'm Anna Howington. And I'm Kimmy Ellen. Let's jump right in. So uh, I'm going to start today and I'm going to tell you all about the Paris catacombs. Ooh, <laughs> that sounds so cool. I saw you posted a pic. Did you post a picture? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's so cool. cool. Yeah. I was okay. I was hoping you'd like catch my hint because um, yeah. <laughs> I did post it on Instagram, I think two days ago. I was lucky enough to get to visit the catacombs. I guess it was... A little over a month ago, I went with my husband. We were in Paris for the first time I'd ever been to Paris. And this was by far my favorite thing that we did in Paris. I just thought it was so cool. It was mm -hmm. so interesting. It was so different. It's an ossuary, which basically just means a container that is holding skeletal remains and is home to the skeletal remains of over 6 million people. Whoa. I know. Must, man, it must be bigger than I, I guess I always kind of figured it being kind of small. Yeah, no, it's um, it's actually over 300 miles in length. What? <laughs> Whoa. So the catacombs are located in these um, limestone quarries that were dug out starting in the 13th century. And the quarries themselves um, are over 300 miles in length. They're all under Paris, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're oh, all under wow. Paris, all under the bustling city of Paris. Um, you don't even know it, you know? Right, I, right. It's just, it's crazy. Mm. Um, and not all of the mines have skeletal remains in them, mm. but, you know, with six million people down there, I think uh, I would I would guess quite a bit of it. A good chunk, yeah. Yeah, enough. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, like I said, they dug out these limestone quarries in the 13th century, and much of the limestone was used to build the city. And one of the reasons why the buildings in Paris have height restrictions is because the weight of a very tall building runs the risk of collapsing you know, mines below it. Oh. So that's why um, one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of skyscrapers in Paris, it's because they just can't hold the weight. I never really thought about that, that like the skyline, of, like compared to like New York or Chicago or something like that, the skyline is pretty, pretty short. Yeah, it's like sprawling. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I remember hearing somewhere too that there was something about like none of the buildings can be higher than the Eiffel Tower right. or it's the surrounding buildings. But I always thought that was like an aesthetic choice. Like I, it didn't really. Yeah. You don't want to block out your moneymaker, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it is an aesthetic choice. But I, I, I did find out that also it's because of the fact that like you, they just can't put that much weight, you know, on the mm. ground itself. So uh, first I'll talk a little bit about like why the bodies got moved there. So in the late 18th century, Paris's cemeteries had become massively overcrowded, causing a public health crisis. And the government had tried to stop burials in the city limits, but that didn't work. The church opposed it and for religious reasons, and they continued to bury their dead as they always had. Uh, but there was one incident in particular that increased the urgency to eliminate these cemeteries. In 1780, Paris's principal cemetery, Les Innocents, a wall collapsed due to the weight of the mass grave behind it and exposed hundreds of partially decomposed bodies. A wall in the, like yeah. it was like built up? 
Yeah, I guess like oh. a wall surrounding the cemetery because they were just like stacking bodies on top of each other. Oh, like in um, New Orleans, they do that. I don't know. I don't, know. Uh, don't they bury people above ground in right. New Orleans? That's what I'm thinking. Like in the, I don't know what those would be called, but I guess that's not what you're talking about. They're like stacked in the ground. Yeah, they were in the ground, but I, I didn't see any pictures of it. So I'm not 100% sure like how exactly they did that. Oh. But there were close to 2 million people buried there and it was not a very large area. Um, Those living nearby reported unbearably strong smells, and they complained that if they left out milk and wine, it would spoil within hours. And I don't know if they knew it at the time, but we now know that that was due to all the bacteria in the air from all the rotting flesh that was close by. Oh, gross. It was really, it was not a healthy place to be. Yeah. And if you're ruining wine in Paris, there's probably, (laughs) they're going to fix that. Yeah, that's that's what that's what did them in, I think. Yeah. I think that's when they were really like, okay, we have to do something. The milk, whatever. The wine, we need to fix this. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so Louis the Sixteenth finally took action and they began emptying the cemeteries in 1786, starting with Les Innocents. It took 12 years to move all of the bodies. Um, some of the oldest bones dated back more than 12,000 years ago. So they had been burying people there for a long time. Yeah. During the French Revolution, the dead were buried directly into the catacombs, but the city stopped moving bodies underground in 1860. When the French first began placing bodies into the ossuary, it served as kind of like a disorganized bone repository. But in 1810, renovations were made to the ossuary, piling the bones neatly along a winding path. It's really interesting because when you go down into the catacombs, it's like these designs with all these bones, Mm. like along the walls. But if you look just past it, you'll just see like these massive piles of bones that like are completely disorganized. Um, It's really creepy. So they weren't like taking like it wasn't like they were like, here's your grandma. Now she's going here so you can visit her. They were just kind of like throwing. Oh, yeah. So they just like threw everything down there at first. And then later on they did these renovations where they like just took like random bones and just like stacked them up. Wow. You'll see like uh, like stacks of like femurs and then like a bunch of skulls yeah. in, in these really crazy patterns. When I was in Portugal in March, we went to, it was just a church. I don't know how like extensive it was, but it sounds really similar to what you're talking about. We like, they were using skulls with designs. Like they would like have these different, I don't know. It was really like, you might, I guess you thought it was beautiful. To me, it was like kind of macabre. Like, well, I guess that's kind of the same thing. It can be the same thing. Yeah. But it was it was strange that it, they were, I mean, it wasn't just like stacks of bodies. It was like you were talking about like designs and kind of art that they were arranging them in a way that made them really pretty. Yeah. So. Along the limestone walls, there's all these quotes in Latin and French painted along the walls. Mm. And the first of these inscriptions, when you enter the catacombs, it reads, stop. This is the empire of the dead. <laughs> I know. It's really creepy. That would be enough for me. I would, I'd, I'd turn around. That would, <laughs> I'd be like, fine. I mean, the sign told me to stop. I'm stopping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did not stop. I kept going (laughs) and I saw it all. Braver. You're braver than I am. So today, only a small section of the Paris catacombs is open to the public. It's only a little under two miles worth. To visit the catacombs, you have to descend five stories underground and over 300,000 people visit each year. Wow. But, you know, like I said, it's a very short section of it. So because there's only a small portion that's open to the public, as you can imagine, 
people find their way into these dark underground tunnels on their own. Um, this is highly dangerous and illegal, but yeah. for many, it's a passion. Um, it's their passion project. Everyone's got to have a thing, right? That's You know, everybody's got to have a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, these explorers of the underground Paris are called cataphiles. Mm. Um, I highly recommend you go online and watch some of their videos because it's crazy and fascinating and terrifying. Uh, one lady goes surfing down there. Surfing? It's just, it's wild. Like on water? Yeah. So there, there, like I said, there's over 300 miles of this underground labyrinth and so many different levels. And there's all kinds of things to be discovered from really large rooms and halls to underground ponds and lakes. Wow. Yeah. Because I guess like if you get down far enough, you're going to find water. Right, right. If you have ever seen the, if you've ever seen the Phantom of the Opera. No. The movie or the musical. There's this scene where he like rows across a lake. That's actually referring to this lake that's in the catacombs under the Opera Garnier. And it is uh, pretty large. It's 60 yards long and 12 feet deep. Wow. And apparently there are fish in the lake that are <laughs> fed by opera employees. Oh. And it's occasionally used by firefighters to simulate rescue tactics in dark environments. Oh, that would, no. no you wouldn't no. do that? <laughs> Nothing about that sounds appealing. I don't like fish. I don't like dark water. I don't like, like, no. If you were a firefighter, you'd be sick that day. You'd be like, sorry, guys. <laughs> right. If for some reason they chose me to be a firefighter in Paris, there would be... Many problems. Yeah. <laughs> that being one of them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the tunnels are still being discovered today wow. because when they dug out all these, you know, mines, they didn't map any of it, which is crazy. Right. Yeah. Um, so nobody really knows exactly how how many miles of these of these tunnels there are. Nobody knows the the full extent of what's down there. Entering the catacombs, like I said, is illegal and can result in a $60 or 60 euro fine, mm. which seems kind of low to me. Right. It was like $120. Like, that's not. Yeah. That's, hmm. No, it's less than that. Isn't it? Oh, maybe it's a pound I'm thinking of that's double. But like parking tickets in New York are more than that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I feel like the entrance fee to the catacombs was only a little less than that. Yeah, right? You might as well just do it yourself. I'm pretty sure we paid like 30 euro to get in. So it might be worth it. I don't know. Don't uh. listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> We're encouraging. Next time anyone's in Paris, it's going to be like, these two girls told me to just do it my, myself. It's fine. Well, they, you can find a guide. Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm not sure how. But there are people that like <laughs> the dark web. Yeah. Like, I mean, you might not, you could probably even just look on Craigslist. Like, I mean, if they're only <laughs> charging like $60 fines, but there's a special police force that roams the catacombs and they're called cataflicks. I guess uh, flick is a French slang word for police officer. They're, they're like an official police force. Yeah. But, yeah. Oh, wow. They're like a, they're like specifically for like monitoring the catacombs. Oh. Once in 2004, the police found a small theater complete with a movie screen, chairs, a bar, and a restaurant. <laughs> wow! <laughs> it had professionally installed uh, phone lines and power lines. Uh, when the police got down there, they saw hidden cameras that were taking pictures of them. And then when they returned later, all the lines had been cut and a note was left that just said, don't try to find us. <gasps> oh my gosh, the mole people of Paris are very 
ingenuitive. Yeah. And uh, they they found like all these like old noir films that they were showing. It just uh, like I would have. You're not showing like Disney films in the like underground theater. (laughs) They they definitely weren't. Yeah. Um, I'd honestly I'd go see any film down there. I just like how cool would that be to be invited to like this like secret underground movie theater? I don't know. It sounds really fun. That does sound fun. Would you go do that? I'd do that. Yeah. Swimming in the underground lake. I don't know about, but but going to watch a movie, I, I think I'd be be all for that. Well, lucky for you, they still host parties down there. They have, like, DJs. Like, there's all kinds of... I mean, this is, like I said, all highly illegal, and you probably have to, like, know somebody who Mm -hmm. knows somebody to figure out about it. But um, the police once broke up an underground rave that had hundreds of people in attendance. Wow. (gasps) That's crazy. I know. I, I think that's just wild. I would totally go to a party down there. Yeah. But... They can also be really, really dangerous. Yeah. I know I've said that like three times, but I just want to reiterate. Yeah. <laughs> it's not all fun and movies and raves. There's Don't go by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not encouraging that at all. <laughs> um, in fact, in 2011, three young explorers lost their way for over two days. Yeah. Um, and they were just like wandering around in the dark until the police found them. The, oh, 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 that sounds <laughs> awful. The, they didn't have flashlights? The dark. Are they? I mean, I guess they did, but like, two days yeah. like it's completely pitch black down there so Ugh. if you're like are you carrying enough batteries to last you for you know longer than 48 hours yeah that's true two straight days oh that sounds awful i know it's so scary yeah. um legend has it if you visit after midnight you will hear the walls begin to speak <sighs> it's said that the voices of the dead are leading you deeper and deeper into the catacombs until you are lost and can never find your way out Ugh. you know it reminds me of um because they don't bury people in san francisco anymore either everyone that dies in for like a hundred years Everybody that dies in San Francisco is buried in the city called Colma. Oh, wow. Um, which is just a like the whole city is all these graveyards. Like it's like the dead outnumber the living by like 10 to 1 or something like that. <laughs> like, wow, that's crazy. Like there's a point when I was trying to find I have a great uncle that um, my family thought might have kind of died as as like a, a vagabond. So I was like, oh, well, I'll try to find him. And it was just like. first of all you have to go to coma and then it's just that's where everybody that's that's died in the area in the past 100 years is buried it's crazy like did you ever find them no I never I I didn't I feel like I could have tried harder but it was like so intimidating right from the beginning like I was just like this is not gonna work out but it, it it sounds like a similar kind of problem that they were like oh we have too many like these really densely populated cities yeah, it was it was really bad. And I think that like for whatever like religious reasons like people like they said like you can't you can't bury people in here anymore. Right. But the churches were right next to the cemeteries and I guess there was something it had to do with like last rites or or something like that where they they like totally ignored the government telling them that and they just kept on piling mm-hmm. people on and piling people on and it was yeah. it it was pretty bad. <laughs> 
I don't, I wonder when they like stopped doing it in San Francisco. Well, I went, when did you say they stopped doing it in Paris in the, 18, in the 1800s was when they were like, oh, we need to put these somewhere else. Uh, I think 17, let me, 1700, late 1700s is when they start, when they started moving the bodies into the catacombs. I wonder if you can still be buried in, I wonder what you, you do now if you die in Paris. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know where they bury you now, but, uh, they don't bury you in the catacombs anymore. <laughs> no, well, no, no. I imagine, I imagine that's off limits, but I just wonder if it's kind of a similar like coma situation. I don't know. That's a good question. I probably should have an answer for you, but I didn't, I didn't find that out. I think they, I think they probably bury people outside of the city or maybe they, if somebody wants to be like inside a church, mm -hmm. I know that they cremate people and put them in churches. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like they have the little like cubbies. What are those called? I was trying to think of those words, that word too. They're not called cubbies. <laughs> no, I know what you mean though. What is a col columbary colab they're called it's called something it's called something <laughs> yes there's gosh it's not an everyday word we don't no. use it all the time <laughs> right yeah it doesn't come up in my profession a whole lot but i feel like i should i feel like that's like something you should know but well anyway that was super cool thanks for sharing that absolutely you're welcome i feel like i got a little tongue-tied on that one but i hope you understood it all no i got it you're you're good so what I'm going with, it's called Operation Mincemeat. What? Um, which it was a, a British deception operation in the Second World War um, that was designed to disguise a 1943 Allied invasion of, Sic of Sicily. But how they did it is super crazy. Did they do it with mince pies? No, no but the name, <laughs> the name was picked. Apparently, this is something I learned. Um, the name was just kind of a random name. Like I, I was trying to figure out why they would choose this crazy name, which when, when we get into the story, it kind of fits, okay. but like not really. And so it just says that there was like a list of names, like a list of code names for these, for any operation that they were having. And they chose that one. And so I, I don't <laughs> like, I guess that there was a point when um, Churchill was like, stop naming them operations that like fit like that they can kind of figure it out. Like it does have to be just kind of some random word. I see. Throw them off the trail. Right. But it's weird to think that it was just some random word that they were like, oh, uh, this one looks good on the list. So they chose Operation Mincemeat. Um, so what it was, was going going back a little bit um, to another Operation Husky. Ooh. Yeah. So during World War II, the... Axis forces kind of had, I know nothing about World War II, so if I say something wrong, I'm very sorry. But um, I tried to talk to my dad, and I feel like my dad knows too much. Like, that's, yeah, I need somebody to, like... <laughs> like, it's, like, it's so many, like, details. Right. You're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, can you give me the, like, two-minute summary of this? And two minutes and my dad do not work together. And then I don't think two minutes in World War II really work together either. So it, it was bad. <laughs> Probably not. But, um... The Axis pretty much had, um, by by this point in the war, kind of 1942, 43, um, the Axis had power of pretty much all of Europe. Ooh. And so um, the most vulnerable part of Europe was what Churchill called the underbelly, okay. kind of the underside. So like Greece, Sardinia, Sicily, like that kind of the the northern Mediterranean kind of. Okay. Um, was, was what everybody kind of knew was the most susceptible part of Europe. So um, in 19, so in January 1943 at the Casablanca conference, um, a, a bunch of allied uh, officials all got together and they decided with Operation Husky that the place that they were going to attack was going to be Sicily. 
and they decided that it should take place no later than July. So they had this plan that we were going to attack Sicily, and then they kind of gave themselves a timetable of six months, because this was in January that they had this, the Casablanca conference. So then they kind of went about trying to figure out a way to throw the Axis powers off the scent. That started Operation Mincemeat. It was started by um, a Rear Admiral John Godfrey. Um, And I'm going to apologize right now with the names, because even though they're English, like you would think I speak English so I could like figure out these (laughs) names, but they're very like English names. I I left out a lot of French words and names in my story because I was like, I just I'm not even going to try. Like there's, there's just a bunch of very like picture the most English sounding name that you can, you know, I mean, like. There's Worcestershire. Right. <laughs> like, there's, there's an Archibald later, I think. I'm, I'll try to like, I'll try my best. But um, there's Rear Admiral John Godfrey, and he was the director of naval intelligence. And he started kind of circulating this memo that he called the Trout Memo. And it had 51 kind of ideas that he had that might be a good way of setting up an attack for Sicily. And one of the suggestions was uh, it was it was number 28 and it was titled a suggestion parentheses not a very nice one was uh, the whole uh, title of this attack and it's also kind of interesting to note that the the whole memo bore all the hallmarks of lieutenant commander ian fleming who was his i think his secretary at the time which ian fleming (laughs) i don't know if you've heard ian fleming is the guy who wrote james bond oh wow I've never I've never seen James Bond. I've I know it was a book and it's kind of on my list, but I I didn't know that was a book at all. Yeah, it was like a bunch of it's like the like the Born Supremacy, like the Born series. Like it's kind of like that. Like it's like spy novels. Wow. I had no idea. And so Ian Ian Fleming wrote them and he was in he was an actual like lieutenant commander. So this was kind of his it says that it built bore all of his hallmarks. So Kind of a a summary of this not a very nice suggestion. It says the following suggestion was used in a book by Basil Thompson. A corpse dressed as an airman with dispatches in his pocket could be dropped on the coast, supposedly from a parachute that failed. I understand there's no difficulty in obtaining corpses at a naval hospital, but of course it would have to be a fresh one. Oh my God. (laughs) So that was the idea. So they were like, okay, guys, we're going to get this body and we're going to just throw it on the beach (laughs) and just right so there were a couple obvious logistical issues with that um the first was where to put it so they decided on spain just off the coast of spain because spain although spain was neutral in world war ii it definitely had which i think was just kind of a result of being part of mainland europe and you know, if you're if your neighbor is invaded by the Axis powers, you might decide that you like the Axis powers, too. So they definitely had some kind of Axis leaning tendencies, but on paper, they were neutral. I see. So they decided that this operation would happen off of the coast of Spain. Um, and then came the the logistical issue of finding this body. So they got in touch with a man who ran the morgue at one of these big hospitals in London um, his name was uh, Purchase Bentley Purchase again with the English Ooh, names. Good old, very English name. Good old Bentley Purchase. So um, he was approached by. So the two men that were kind of in charge of this operation were named Montague and Charles Chumley was the first one, and then Chumley was the Air Force guy, and then you and Montague was the Navy guy. So they kind of both got together, and they were the ones that were in charge of this plan. So um, Montague discussed the possibility of attaining a corpse from Bentley. 
Bentley told them that there would be legal difficulties. Um, quote, I should think that bodies are only commodities not in short supply at the moment, but even with bodies all over the place, each of them has to be accounted for. Um, end quote. And then Purchase promised to look out for a body that would be suitable with no relatives to claim. So, yeah, so they were kind of (laughs) like all on the hunt for this body (laughs) that would fit. It had to be somebody that would look like an airman, somebody that could kind of fit. Had to be fresh. um, Wasn't too old. (laughs) It had to be fresh. It also had to be like not like the way that he died had to be in a certain way. Like he couldn't be hit by a bus or something like that. He had to be kind of they were really looking for somebody with pneumonia they wanted to find somebody who died of pneumonia because their thinking was Hmm. if the spanish did an autopsy on this body i mean pneumonia is water in your lungs which if you crashed into the ocean and you drowned you would have water in your lungs okay in january of 1943 so really soon after they decided on this plan uh purchase contacted montague with the news that he had located a suitable body the body was this man named glendor michael which it's Glendor with a W just to make it really interesting. It's oh, wow. G-L-Y-N-D-W-R. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm pretty sure that it's Glendor. I looked up a YouTube video and apparently there's a Glendor University in Wales. And I was just really trying to listen to how this very Welsh woman was pronouncing this word. And I, I'm pretty sure it's Glendor is how you're supposed to say it. Um, the body was probably Glendor Michael. He was a tramp who died from eating rat poison. He was a, I'm sorry, he was a what? A tramp. Sorry, he was a, a homeless. Tramp. Yeah, that's what Wikipedia says. I'm sure that's oh. not a very PC word. He, okay. he was, I just I I thought a tramp was a was a negative. Was he a sex worker? No, I didn't say anything about that. Okay, so I think he he was just a a homeless man okay. in London who died on the streets of London from eating rat poison, and they figure that um th- there's still it's still kind of out whether he committed suicide or whether he was like eating this because he was hungry so because they said that the rat poison was on a piece of bread oh my gosh so they don't really know well it sounds like somebody might have tried to kill him well i i mean <laughs> I if you're, somebody gives you a piece of bread you're like oh bread great and you eat it right and there's rat poison on it oh, i don't know maybe i didn't i didn't see any suggestions of that but maybe that, they were that, trying to kill some rats with a piece of bread and he found the bread right. and was like oh great a piece of bread Right. I think that this was... This is not important, is it? Yeah. <laughs> they said that it was, like, it was just in some warehouse that he ate this piece of bread. And kind of the sad part is that that's pretty much all that's known about this man. Like, when you go to his Wikipedia page, which I was trying to find, like, other sources, and I was trying to find other information about this person, everything was, like, Wikipedia was the most, like, had the most information about this person. And so... I. All the information they have is that Glendor Michael was born uh, January 1908, pardon me, 1909, and he was a Welsh homeless man whose body was used in this operation, a successful Second World War uh, deception plan to lure British forces to Greece. Um, and, And then all it says is that he was born in this place in Wales. I'm not even going to try to say it. It starts with an A. That's about all I got. Um, Before leaving town, he held a part-time job as a gardener and a laborer. His father, Thomas, was a coal miner, killed himself when Michael was 15. Somewhere that I read said that his father had stabbed himself in the neck. Oh, my God. Not not cut his throat. It said stabbed in the neck. Yeah. Michael was homeless, friendless, 
depressed and with no money he drifted to london where he lived on the streets he was found abandoned in an abandoned warehouse close to king's cross two days later he died at 34 in saint pancras hospital his death may have been a suicide although he simply may have been hungry as the poison he ingested was a paste smeared on a crust of bread to attract rats oh, oh i was right i was right yeah yes yep <laughs> and that's that's it which i mean that's that's all like i, I don't know i feel so bad that that's like all we know about yeah, this man no like, i shouldn't be so excited i just no, I, that's wrong no i get it no i get it i get it yeah it was smeared on a piece of bread and that was that was that's it so that's like kind of all that we know about this man so um they found this so anyway so they found this body um they decided that it would work uh, Montague commented that the body was undernourished and it may not look like a fit officer. And then Purchase said the the coroner said that, oh, well, he doesn't have to look like an officer, only a staff officer, which I guess would be malnourished. I don't I don't know. <laughs> and so um, Purchase agreed to keep the body in a refrigerator that was only four degrees Celsius because they didn't want to freeze the flesh because if they froze it and then thawed it out, it would look like it was frozen and then thawed out. So they just wanted to keep it kind of fresh oh my god <laughs> and so they kept it for for three months oh my god so from the time from the time they found it the clock was ticking right because they wanted to do this operation husky they wanted to do it in july and so they needed enough time to so they had six months that feels a little long like have you ever put like some chicken in your fridge yeah. and like <laughs> two weeks you take it out and you're like is this still good and you open it and you're like nope definitely not not still good I mean, I don't think, is it, how cold is your freezer? Like, it says 39 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, that's pretty cold. I thought they said that they weren't freezing him, though. They weren't trying to freeze him, like, solid. But they wanted to free, they, they, he was kept in a mortuary refrigerator that was, was four degrees Celsius, which is 39 degrees Fahrenheit. And it says any colder, the flesh would freeze, which would be obvious when, after the body defrosted. So. I don't know. I would assume that the coroner knows more than I do. Yeah. So, so that kind of started this clock of trying to to get this plan together. So they took the body and um, they decided to make this like fictitious character. So they gave him the name of Captain, it says acting major, I don't know what that means, uh, William Martin of the Royal Marines assigned to Combined Operation Headquarters. And they chose the name, actually it was, the, they said that it was the name of an actual person. Like they they wanted to make sure that if the Germans like looked up this person, they would find him, but apparently he was stationed in Rhode Island. So like he wouldn't have, he wouldn't know that, oh, I just got reported dead. <laughs> oh no. So then they, then they started like putting all of this stuff with him. So they called it a uh, pocket litter was what they called it. So it was kind of the stuff like if you were to just look through my purse, I think you would get kind a pretty good kind of picture of who I was. Like there's things in there that I think would are things that I just kind of carry around that I think that you you would be able to kind of identify who I was, right? So totally. that's what, so they were trying to like put that stuff together. And, and look, an actor needs a backstory. Is all right. <laughs> right, even a dead one. You need motivation. Right. Right. You know, it's it's important. Right. So in his pocket litter, they included a photograph of an invented fiance named Pam. And there's a picture of this woman. Like they have a picture, this picture of this woman that her name was Jane Leslie. She worked for MI5, like she worked for the the counterintelligence agency. Um, there were two letters from Pam um, that were included in the pocket letter. There was a receipt for a diamond engagement ring costing 53 pounds from, from a jeweler. Nice. Um, additional correspondence included 
um, a letter from his fictitious father describing described by McIntyre as a pompous and only pompous as only an Edwardian father could be. So this letter, I feel like there's some projection there, right? Yeah. Like, (laughs) like the person that wrote that letter has a bone to pick with somebody and right with his Edwardian father. Like you ever, have you ever like gotten like really upset at someone and you wrote out a letter and then didn't send it? I, I've heard you're supposed to do that. I should do that more. But I, yes, I have. Do you heard send that. them? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes, I have sent emails, but like right after I send it, I'm like, oh. I, I've done it a few times. I'm sorry. Yeah, where I like, I'm like really yeah. upset with somebody and I'll just like write out this letter and then I'm like, okay, I'm not going to send it. And then like a few days later, I'm yeah. just like, I'm so glad I didn't send that. But right, it sounds like this guy did yeah. that, but then put it in this guy's pocket. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's probably what it was. He was like, oh, dad, <laughs> you need to get off of your high horse. Um, so there was a note from his father. Um, there was also a note from the family solicitor, so the lawyer, demanding payment for an overdraft of £49. So not only was this man having this overbearing father and this fiancé that was writing him his letters, he was also financially irresponsible. Okay. <laughs> so he was overdraft in his account by £49. They also wanted to make sure that all of these letters um, would withstand kind of being in the ocean. So they tested typewriter ink and writing ink that would last longest because it couldn't be like special ink because then they would pick up on it. Mm. Um, it says also in his pocket litter, there was a book of stamps. There was a silver cross and a St. Christopher medallion, which um, would identify him as Catholic, which is something that's important. Uh, there were cigarettes, a match, uh, pencil stubs, keys, and a receipt for a new shirt. Okay. We're all in his... Uh, oh, and then there was also um, tickets to a theater. There was a bill for a night of lodging. Okay, like, I'm sorry, but how big are the pockets on these guys' pants? <laughs> like, I was thinking he, that, too. Like, why is why would you be carrying that much stuff? Tic- like, ticket stubs to a theater? Like, you're in a fighter jet. Like, why do you have this still in your pocket? Right. I don't know. But I feel like they don't have, like, it's not like they really, like, have, like, where else would he put this They stuff? do have a lot of pockets on uniforms, too. You know what I mean? Like, right, I feel right. like... I don't know. <laughs> it's it's a lot of stuff. I don't know why you why you would have all of that. But they they had enough of his itinerary that you could like trace his activities in London from the 18th to the 24th of April. So they like purposefully like made it so that you could be like, oh, he was definitely in London during these dates, which was crazy. I can almost guarantee whoever finds this body is like not even going to look through all this stuff, probably. Right. Well, yeah. So that was the thing. So they were they were quite worried. So that kind of comes up a little bit. Um, So there were also some like there was his uniform. um, Montague wore around his uniform. Oh, no, sorry. Chom Chom Laney uh, wore around his uniform just to make sure that like it looked worn in. They also just as like a final, they needed an ID, right? You need a military ID and they could not. Apparently it's really hard to take a picture of a body and make it look like it's alive. Yeah. Yeah. So they couldn't figure out how to do that. So they just took a picture of some other guy that they thought looked like him and then made an ID. Uh, You ever use a fake ID? Right, but the person in the fake ID isn't dead. No, oh no, I know. But I'm just saying, like, I think you can, like, I've gotten away with fake IDs that were ridiculously unlike oh, me. Oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> like, yes. to a point where it was just like, anybody who accepted that was, like, clearly not looking at <laughs> not the picture at all. And yeah. Yeah. I do think they, there's a point when they're like, oh, whatever. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
My sister, she's not going to like that I tell this story at all. Do it. My sister, when we were in Vegas one time, I am definitely the wet blanket of my family. I go to sleep early. I'm not really a, a clubber <laughs> or whatever, but my sisters at a certain age were. And so my youngest sister, who's five years younger than me, she, while I was sleeping, took my driver's license because she was not 21 yet. Yes. And she went. <laughs> so then her and my middle sister went down to some are we bar. Using, and are we pair- using names of sisters or no? I, I Maybe not. I okay. Know. I can see... I can see your middle sister doing that. I cannot see your youngest sister doing that. Yes. That's right. hilarious. So my young, yeah. So then, but it gets better. So then they went to this bar, I guess. And then my sister said that my, my youngest sister, we'll call her Sharky. That's her nickname. Okay. Nobody knows that. So Sharky um, was really worried that they were going to take my ID. And so then when they were like figuring all of this out and he like called up his manager and whatever, she just like pulled the idea away and ran That's away. That's the way you do it. But, I mean, what else are I you going to do? <laughs> right. I love so that. So she was very proud of herself that she did not get my ID taken. I love that. She like tore it out of his hand and just started running. Yes. And ran <laughs> away. Yes. And just ran away. That's amazing. And then I, I don't know if they tried. They might have tried to go somewhere else. I love it. I bet they did. I bet they went to like four more bars that night. And like, I know. But apparently they found this guy. And he, they figured he looked like this dead guy. Close enough. <laughs> and close enough, yeah. More so than uh, taking a picture of a dead guy, which I never really realized would be an issue to like take a picture of a dead... A person had been dead for three months and try to like <laughs> prop, I don't know, prop their eyes open. Oh or I don't know what... I don't know what you're doing. So they they found this ID. So they put it in this briefcase and then they handcuffed. They they like handcuffed the briefcase to okay, him. Okay, that's suspicious. <laughs> I agree. You're to go through all that trouble to like make him look like an actual soldier. And then you're going to be like, and here's just this handcuffed briefcase. That's not weird at all. Right. And like they said, even the briefcase did, they, they didn't want to put, a, they couldn't put official documents in it because if they put official documents in it, Official documents would not be just like flying with this random guy. So they had to kind of be unofficial correspondence between um, these supposed diplomatic people so that they wouldn't because, you know, what I'm saying like if it was like official stuff, it would be like encoded and it would be carried like it would have a what are those people called? Like it would have like not just one plane. It would have a whole bunch of planes. Like, it wouldn't just be some random guy flying by himself if it was official stuff. So part of the unofficial stuff was a letter from Lieutenant General Sir Archibald Nye. Wow. Very, yes. They originally tried to get him, or they were trying to write a letter that sounded like him, but they said after several attempts of drafting a document that did not generate something that that they considered neutral, it was suggested that Nye just write the letter himself. So somebody else was trying to, like, write this letter, and then... I guess Nye read it and was like, dude, this doesn't sound like me at all. Let me just do it. And so he wrote the letter. And apparently Montague thought the results were, quote, quite brilliant, which, again, super British. Quite, <laughs> quite brilliant. I'm, I'm sure he thought it was amazing. British people don't get excited about anything. They're like, oh, that was amazing. They wouldn't say amazing. They would be like, quite, quite brilliant. And that's like the top of the compliments that they can give. <laughs> so in these letters, he couldn't outright say, dude, we're moving. We're, we're going to be attacking Greece. Um, which was the plan. Sorry, I guess I didn't even say that part. So the plan was to try to convince Germany that they were attacking Greece so that they could actually attack Sicily was the plan. They were just kind of corresponding. They couldn't quite come out and straight say it. So the document included a, a clumsy joke about sardines 
which Montague inserted in the hopes that the Germans would see it as a reference for the planned invasion of Sardinia. They were trying to convince the Germans that they were going to be attacking Greece and Sardinia. Wait, wait, let me get this straight. So they're going through all this trouble. They're putting all this stuff in a letter and they're not coming out right and saying it. So they're just hoping that the Germans get this like cryptic riddle they put in there. (laughs) Right. This, this joke about sardines and go, this joke must be an obvious point that they're going to Sardinia. And so we're going to do all of this stuff. Yes. That was the hope. Wow. Was that, that they could do that. So yeah. So there was a single joke. I wish I knew what this joke was. I tried to find it. I could not find this hilarious joke about sardines. And also while you're talking about the crazy stuff inside of this letter, a single black eyelash was placed within the letter to check that if the Germans or the Spanish had opened it. And so then they put it on this body and They uh, hooked it up to a submarine. They decided that a submarine was the best way to execute this plan. And then they took it, the the submarine captain was Lieutenant Jewell. um, And he had a whole crew that was previously involved in special operations. And there were some, like I watched a documentary about this and some people in the documentary were like, yeah, everyone on on the submarine knew that there was a body in this thing. But then there were other people that were like, no, no one knew that there was a body. Fun fact. My grandpa was on a submarine in World War II. Really? Yeah. Oh, you should ask him. I can't ask him. He's dead. But my um, grandfather was a spy in World War II. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So, yeah. I wonder if he was on this submarine. Well, he wouldn't have been. He's not. I mean, he was fighting for the Americans. Yeah. Oh, these are British. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry. It's not known how many people aboard the submarine knew that there was a body on it. So um, the body was strapped to the submarine. And it was put in this canister. There was this really ornate way or intricate way of putting this body in it to make sure that it was airtight. Um, and then they stamped handle with care optical instruments on the outside of this canister with the body in it just to like make sure that nobody, I don't know, nobody wants to look at optical instruments. I guess not. Yeah. So then they, it says set sail. I guess that's what submarines do. It's weird to think, I mean, they're not really setting a sail, but anyway. Dive down. I don't know. Yeah. Submerge. I should come up with a better name. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Set sail does not sound right. Um, They were bombed twice en route. Um, And then they got to the coastline and they went to release the body. Jewel read Psalm 39 and ordered the engines full astern. So they just let the body go. They, they tried to sink the canister. They had a hard time with that. They eventually sunk the canister. And uh, Jewel afterwards sent a message to Admiralty admiralty um that said mincemeat complete and then he continued to gibraltar apparently this crazy scheme worked wow so um the body was found the next morning by fishermen the uh fishermen immediately turned it over to the spanish officials um spanish officials wanted to do an autopsy but somehow the british council in spain was there so they kind of had an inside man was there and he somehow t- like talked them out of it citing some stuff about like catholicism it's like i think it has to do with like the last the last rites in catholicism there's like yeah like I think ha- something having to do you're with not that. supposed to yeah and, and they were talking about like ha- handling a body was not something that they wanted to do so um he asked if in the heat of the day the smell of the corpse the doctors should bring the post-mortem to a close and have lunch so, like, he was like, dude, this is kind of hard work. You don't want to do this. Let's just... Take a siesta. Yeah. Yes. All about siestas. And they were like, fine. 
great idea. They were like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Um, but they did turn. So I don't think they it doesn't make any mention that they looked at all of this, like the litter. If they looked at any of his pocket litter, but they did look at the uh, briefcase. So the briefcase went to this man named Adolf Klaus, who was the German uh, agent, one of a German soldier that was kind of stationed in uh, this town in Spain. And it went all the way to Hitler. Like Hitler saw the stuff in this briefcase. And apparently it went to Goebbels first. And Goebbels was apparently really suspicious of it. Like he was like, this does not, this doesn't seem right. But he didn't voice any of these suspicions to Hitler. So they, they read all these documents. It went all the way to Hitler and then they apparently gave it back. When it got back to London, they forensically figured out it was forensically examined. The missing eyelash was noted. Um, they also noticed that fibers were damaged and that it had been refolded. They also knew that it had been wet and then dried and then wet again. So they like they figured out that they had read it. So they started this kind of feverish, like trying to throw everybody off. So they were sending these these messages back and forth that they knew the Germans would intercept about like, does anybody know where this briefcase is and who read the briefcase and all this n stuff about the briefcase? And um, apparently Churchill uh, sent a letter to the United States and it read, mince meat swallowed rod, line and sinker by the right people. And for the best information, they look like they're acting on it. It worked. This like crazy scheme worked. They bought it. And so then when um, the Allied forces did actually attack Sicily, uh, there were only seven only. 7,000 men were lost, which is way less than would have originally been lost because there were way less troops there. Wow. So it was it was deemed a success and ended up being a, a really pivotal part of the end of World War II. So it, it really shifted the whole outlook of the war. And it all started by this this one man, this dead homeless person um, that they found in London. And just to kind of put a cap on it, the Spanish buried him in Spain. His grave marker um, said, it said, William Martin, born the 29th of March, 1907, and died the 24th of April, 1943, beloved son of John Glendore Martin and the late Antonia Martin of Cardiff, Wales. And then it says, uh, Latin phrase, and then R.I.P., and the Latin phrase says, it's sweet and fitting to die for one's country. So he was buried with full military honors, and it wasn't until 1993 that the British were finally like, okay, that's, this is our man. Um, and the, or, pardon me, 1997. And then there was a postscript that was added to his grave that says Glendor Michael serving as Major William Martin RM. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So that's kind of the end of how, of uh, Operation Mincemeat. Wow. And how this one, this one kind of deception plan totally shifted the whole outlook of World War II and how, how it ended and, that's yeah. crazy. I just, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm so surprised that worked. Like, it's just, that's wild. They said even Churchill was like, oh, whatever, guys. Like, if you guys want to try shot, it. I guess. Uh, right. But apparently that was like, he figured Churchill was really into, um, what did he call it? Corkscrew thinking, I think, was was one of his phrases. Like, he really liked these kind of like out of the box kind of plan because apparently Hitler was a very like straight lined, like he wasn't a corkscrew thinker. So like huh. Hitler or uh, Churchill really thought he would have this advantage if they kind of did all these different maneuvers and different kind of tactical things that were kind of out of the box because it would deceive Hitler. And I guess it, I guess they were right. It wow. Did. 
So that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a lot of fun looking into that. I've kind of known about it for a while and I I've always thought it was a really weird yeah, thing. Yeah, thanks for sharing. So that was that was awesome. Yeah. So do we do we want to do our, our rundown? Yeah, let's do our rundown. Why don't you start? Okay. Um I had so I had one like totally lined up. I've been like I'm I'm kind of a practicer. So like I was like practicing it in my car and like how I was gonna <laughs> say it and what I was gonna do. But then today so I went running today and Friday is kind of my long run day. So I have a 10K course that I kind of track. And so I was probably at like the fourth mile maybe. Um, and I was running on a residential street, like just in some neighborhood. And there was a car. So I'm just like running along. And there was a car that was coming like the opposite direction. And when it got close to me, it started like frantically honking, like boop, 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 which I, I mean, I don't know. I guess that kind of just happens. Like I've been honked at before. I think just kind of as a female runner, sometimes that happens. And I've I've been lucky that I haven't had any like crazy experiences, but I, I have been honked at before. So it was just like, whatever. But I guess that while I was listening to my headphones and I kept running, this car turned around <gasps> and it came back oh, no. and I saw it pass me again. And it's like frantically honking. And I was like, oh my God. And then this car pulled into like a driveway that was like intersecting oh, my, my way. And then I looked in the window and it like looked in the car and it was one of my lifeguards. <laughs> like it was like, I work in parks and recreation. And so it was somebody that works for me. And they were like, hey, we just noticed you. Why would they do that to somebody? That's so terrifying. I know. That's I like went up to them. I was like, don't oh ever gosh. do like you freaked me out. Just send me a text. Like, hey, saw hey you. I saw you running. If you see somebody running that you know, do not like drive erratically to get their attention because it freaks them out. Totally. Yeah. So that's my my running story. I'll tell you the other story. Okay. Later. <laughs> we can save the other one for next time. Right, right. Yeah. There's always, always next time. I think my, I, I'm going to say my run today was my favorite run of the week because it just like the weather was just perfect for a run. It was mm. like 68 degrees outside and oh, wow. like not too much wind and really bright and sunny and um just like really crisp like it it rained really like there was a storm here yesterday we mm -hmm. actually lost power this morning so that was that was fun oh wow <laughs> they, they got yeah. it back up but um Good. but you know how like how clean the air gets after a really nice rain yeah. so it just felt like yeah. really like fresh and crisp and but Good. it was a Good. little, I went a little long today and I got a little tired. Yeah. But that's okay. <laughs> that happens. Yeah. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Um, everybody, thanks for listening and uh, visit us on the web at peculiarstoriesandfaroutales.com. Uh, follow us on social media. Our Instagram is Peculiar Stories and Far Out Tales, and our Facebook is the same. We hope that you guys will look us up. Follow us, like our posts, do all, all that the jazz. things. Yep. Oh, and we have a Patreon, right? Oh, Kim? yes. Yep. Patreon.com slash PSAFOT is Great. Patreon. Make sure to uh, listen, rate, and subscribe, and we'll talk to y'all later. Yeah. Bye, Great. guys. Bye.